God's word says, Luke chapter two, verse one. And those, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying on a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. And the name was given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Oh, Father, this is your word. We pray, God, that you would minister it to us. Lord, we thank you for the arrival of your son, Jesus. Teach us this morning the significance of it, God. Lead us and guide us. Lord, may we become worshipers this morning. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab a seat, you guys. All right. Well, this morning we're going to just briefly consider a few things out of the passage that I just read, and I'll try to keep it short. I know we got kiddos in here, and uh, they're, they're, they're wiggly, and that's okay. Uh, so we just invite that this morning. I want you to consider this, this phrase, this statement. What the enemy cannot get us to compromise, he will attempt to get us to trivialize. What the enemy cannot get us to compromise, he will then get us to trivialize or to fictionalize. In other words, if the enemy can't get us to deny the realities of the gospel, then the next best thing he can do is to lessen the weight of the realities of the gospel. Christians every year get, get kind of upset, and I understand why. They get kind of upset when, when the uh, sort of the the lost kind of world around us starts to, to pull the word Christ out of Christmas. You know, we start to see it come out of our institutions and our secular, uh, you know, um, businesses and things, and it kind of frustrates us and, and whatever. And I actually think that's a, a misappropriation uh, of our energy. 
I, I don't think we should be concerned whether or not the world is pulling Christ out of Christmas any more than we're concerned about the world pulling in God we trust off of our bills. Just because you say it doesn't mean you believe it. I think what we should be more concerned about is whether or not Christians have allowed the enemy to trivialize the arrival of the birth of Jesus Christ in this season. And what I mean by that is that we should be worried about the fact that we have actually begin to lose sight or forget about the significance, the theological significance, the weight, the, 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 the significance of what Christ did when he showed up. And that's what I want to just think about this morning. And the way we're going to do this is I just want to, I want to ask three questions from the text that we just read. Now, the text that we just read is so familiar to you. And that puts me at a disadvantage with you guys, because in many ways, we feel like we get it. We feel like we understand it. I don't know about you, but I, I hear Linus's voice from the Charlie Brown Christmas. I hear him reading this passage, right? And it's hard to, to, to separate all of the feelings and all of the, um, all of the history that we have with Christmas, but we need to do that. We need to step back and we need to think about how radical some of the ideas are that are introduced in the narrative of Christmas, lest we make the mistake of trivializing something that has eternal significance. The, the arrival of Jesus in the incarnation, the incarnation means God becoming man, putting on human flesh. The arrival of Jesus in the incarnation is the linchpin of the gospel. If we lose the incarnation, there is no good news for the salvation of this world. Are you with me? So let's ask the question, what's the big deal about the incarnation? What's the big deal about God coming into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, fully God and truly man? Let's interact with that today. Now, Luke's material, which is the material we just read, uh, he's one of four gospel writers. And Dr. Luke records things historically, but also thematically. And the reason I say that is to say that he brings up particular details that matter not just for the historicity of the event, but because he's trying to draw out certain theological points, theological realities. And so when we read a text like this, especially one that's so familiar to us, we need to go, what is Luke trying to, to portray that should be odd to us? It should be strange to us. I think there's three things, if you're a note taker, uh, if there, if there's three things that should be odd to us, strange to us, in the narrative of Dr. Luke's account of the birth of Jesus Christ. And I think those three things have huge theological significance. So I'll give all three of them to you up front, and then we'll just unpack them briefly. The first thing we should ask, I think, is why the shepherds? Why the shepherds? You notice in the passage that we read that the shepherds are the ones sent by the angelic host to go and receive the birth of Jesus. Why the shepherds? The second thing we need to ask is, why a feeding trough? Any of you kiddos know what the feeding trough is? Any kids in here know what that is? What's, what do we call it? Away in the what? In the manger, right? You guys know a, a manger is a feeding trough, literally. Why is Jesus, the Son of God, King of the universe, why is he in a feeding trough? And number three, the third question we should ask, why the presence of multiple angels appearing to the shepherds and praising God? Let's ask those three questions and answer them quickly. First, let's start with why the shepherds. The shepherds uh, are invited by the angels to go and greet the Messiah, as we've seen in the narrative. Now, why is this strange? It's strange because shepherds, uh, com un contrary to what you may have heard, 
were not considered nobility, nor were they considered uh, synonymous with some kind of immorality. Some people say, oh, shepherds were, you know, they were, it was such an important position. That's why they were called to see Jesus. Or, oh, shepherds, they were kind of bad guys, and that's why it's scandalous. No, shepherds were synonymous with nobodies. It was a very blue-collar, a very run-of-the-mill, a very entry-level type of a job. And so it's significant and even interesting and compelling why these shepherds were invited to go and receive uh, the, the birth of the Messiah. So let me give you a few reasons why I think the shepherds were called to go and receive the Messiah. First, you want to write it down? Because God works incognito. God works incognito. The testimony and the presence of the shepherds was very intentional, I believe, in order to not draw too much attention to the arrival of Jesus Christ. Jesus did most of his life and ministry in obscurity up until the last few months. He did this because he knew he needed to die at the right time and at the right age and having fulfilled all uh, righteousness and, and done all that he needed to do. Jesus doesn't want to draw too much attention to himself, so his greeting party sent by the Father, by the angels, is a very uh, a group of men that's not going to draw a lot of attention. I like what one commentator says, James Edwards. He says, the disarming intrusion of God into the world and the birth of Jesus stands in sharp contrast to the imperial ambitions of Caesar Augustus. There he is. God does not break into the world in a world leader, a fuhrer, or a cosmic hero. Rather, listen, he penetrates the defensive armor of the world by sending his son as a child not to the well-connected and established, but to shepherds who live in the precarious margins of society. I love this idea here he uses of Christ's entrance penetrating the defensive armor of this world. Jesus came in through the back door, in behind enemy lines for the purpose of destroying evil. Jesus' arrival was unassuming. It was quiet, and the shepherds, I think, add to that. God's plan to defeat the enemy was to drop Jesus behind enemy lines, commonly dressed, under cover of night, and among common people, such as the shepherds. It's kind of like Star Wars. You guys notice every Star Wars movie, there's always one little group of rebels that show up in one group of tiny little ships, and they just happen to find one tiny little tailpipe on the back of one giant Death Star, and the whole thing blows up one shot. You notice that? Like every movie, it's the same thing. Like there's this giant space station we're never going to be able to destroy this planet. I bet there's a hole somewhere we could shoot a laser in and the whole thing will destroy, right? And they'll never see it coming. Am I the only one that watches these movies <laughs> and thinks that? Like they didn't build, they, when you built the Death Star, you didn't think about the little tailpipe at the back that, you know, the whole thing will blow up. We love stories like that. Because the bad guys aren't really guarding that spot. They're not, thinking about the, they're not thinking about the significance of a few little ships. And in the same way, Jesus, our Lord, enters into the behind enemy lines, into the battleground of a lost and dying world, and he defeats the enemy in an unseen, unforeseen kind of way. He comes in in the most, you would never guess that God himself would arrive in the form of a human child. I think there's application for us in that, and that is to not assume that God is not working when things are not flashy or when things are not drawing big crowds. You know, in, in, in the West, we tend to assume that the most fruitful things draw the biggest attention at the biggest platforms, of the biggest followings. I guess you could say, if you're using those metrics, that the arrival of Jesus was a flop, right? The arrival of Jesus seems to be a flop, 
But in reality, that's not what's happening at all. God sends people to, to receive the king, but he sends the right people that will allow the whole thing to sort of remain under the radar. The second reason I think the shepherds are called is that God comes, and you can write this down, God comes for the socially unvaluable. God comes for the socially unvaluable. Again, I, I said it already, but the shepherds, I think the significance of them is not that their, their, their role is inherently spiritual, but because their role as shepherds is inherently ignorable. They're common folk. They are, they are doing the job that you do when you have no higher education. They're doing the job that you do when you don't have a lot of money. They're just doing a very basic thing in life. And these are the people that God calls specifically. And I think the reason is in verse 10 of our text. The angel says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good, new, good news of great joy that will be for who? All people, every layer, every layer in the socioeconomic strata, the, good, the gospel is good news for all people. It's interesting, I learned this week that there were a couple of very famous people who would have probably been at Bethlehem at the same time because of the census. Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem because Rome did a nationwide census. Two of these men, you might have heard of them before, would have been Rabbi Hillel, one of the most famous rabbis of his day. He would have no doubt also been in Bethlehem. And his grandson, Gamaliel, who actually was the teacher and instructor of the Apostle Paul. These were famous rabbis, not to mention Bethlehem's only a handful of miles from Jerusalem. So my point is that if God wanted to send the high priest and the Sanhedrin and the, the up and ups and the high echelon of, of society into Bethlehem to greet his son, he certainly would have. But rather, God chooses and selects people in, as it was stated already, in the margins of society, down a few notches in the socioeconomic strata. I love this. I love this. I love this. It's so baked into our culture because we have Judeo-Christian roots. But God is a God of all levels of culture. God is a God who has come to save the least and the last and the lost. And I don't know if you guys ever noticed this, but usually the people that are in the back of one line end up being the first to leave that line and be the first in another line. You ever at the grocery store and, and you're like already put all your stuff on the conveyor belt? I had this happen to me the other day and I was just like, what are you thinking? And, and I, all my stuff's on the conveyor belt. And this girl comes up, she's like, you want to move over to line three? I'm like, no, all my stuff is right here. Now, I'll tell you who wants to move to line three. The guy in the back with a stick of gum. He's like, heck yeah, I'll go to line three. I got nothing invested in this line, okay? That's the reality of the kingdom of God. The people that are last in the line of this world are the first to line up in the kingdom of God. The people that are so invested in this world, the people that have all their groceries on the conveyor belt, they're the last to want to open their hand and say, I'll give it all to Christ, right? The shepherds have nothing on the conveyor belt. Are you with me? And that is why they're the first to line up to see the arrival of the Messiah. Our hands should hold all earthly things loose enough that when God says, here, take this, or he says, take my hand, we have nothing hindering us. Our hands are open, they're empty. The third reason I think the shepherds are the ones selected is because God does stuff, write this down, God does stuff using what is available and reachable. God does stuff using what is available and reachable. When asking the question, why the shepherds, I think we should probably not neglect the answer, the most basic answer, and that is that they were there. 
Is that too, is that too obvious? They were there. When God, stuff, when God does stuff, he uses the people that are around him. And that's a basic point, but I think it's an important point. Because the key to being used by God is not qualification as much as it is location and submission. To say, God, you've put me here, and because I'm here, will you use me? The shepherds were there. They were available. They were willing, and they went. Now, let's ask the next question. Why the feeding trough? Why the manger? What's the significance of that? Again, what is a manger? A manger was a stone feeding trough. It was the place where animals would eat their food. What is the significance? If you read the narrative, Luke makes sure that we understand that Jesus was laid in swaddling cloths in a manger. And then the shepherds are instructed to go and look for a baby in the manger. What's up with this? Well, first of all, I think one of the reasons for the feeding trough is there's nothing else to put Jesus in. Very practical, right? Apparently, co-sleeping wasn't trendy then. I don't know. Um, you know if you want to know what the biblical position on sleeping is, you know, put them in their crib and let them cry. No, I'm just kidding. Everybody in here with newborns knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, there's a big debate, you know, between parents about co-sleeping, not co-sleeping. Okay. Another, another practical reason is that this is a very abnormally visible sign of who the baby is. Because remember, is Jesus glowing, kids? Is Jesus glowing? No. He, he's, Isaiah tells us he's very common, very normal, very normal-looking child. He might not even have been that cute. I, that might sound blasphemous to you. Isaiah says he was, he was just a common guy. Okay? So, so, no, they wouldn't have known which baby this was. And so the sign to the shepherds is going to be that he'll be in the manger. But I think there's a, a much serious, much more eternal reason for why Jesus is placed in a manger. And it's this. Because from the very beginning of Jesus' human life, he was placed in the dirt. Do you understand that? Do you guys understand that if God the Son, Jesus, God the Son, if he wanted to stay in a comfortable place, he would have stayed in heaven. But he chose rather to come and to get down on the floor of the muck and the mire of this broken world and the incarnation. You realize that's what the incarnation is? It's God leaving perfection and coming into a place of pain and death and hurt and struggle with you and I. The only way I can think about what this would be like is if I was sitting uh, in a warm, cozy house with a fire burning and hot chocolate, and I look out, and there's a freezing, cold, muddy pond outside, and someone says, hey, do you want to go climb in that pond? I say, absolutely not. But then I look out, and I see my child struggling and drowning in the pond. You better believe I'm in that pond. The incarnation is God who is perfect, living in perfect transcendence and perfect righteousness, sees a world lost and dying, sees his kids lost and dying. He comes into the pond. He gets into the muck. He gets into the mire. The significance of Jesus is in the manger is it reminds us that our God did not stay in heaven. He came into a broken world and he climbed into the, the, the pain of it with us. He drank the whole cup of the human existence in order to become our high priest so he can relate with us, in order to die in our place. The incarnation is astounding for that reason. And the manger, I think, reminds us of it. The manger also reminds us that God's presence takes up residency in the most unworthy and unlikely places. Like us. 
Jesus' presence is laid in, in a, a, a vessel unworthy of such worth. Right? And in the New Covenant and in the New Testament, we learn that the presence of Christ in his spirit is placed within the church, placed within us. We become vessels of his presence. Like the manger, we're not worthy of his presence. And I don't know about you guys, but I, I, I constantly go, God, why would you want to live in me? And, and the, the, the answer is that even though I, as a vessel, am unclean, the, the, the purity of Christ supersedes my impurity. Similar to the woman with the issue of blood, right? She touches Jesus. Does she make him unpure or does he make her pure? In Christ, or if Christ is in you, his presence and his purity is the only thing that now defines you. We are unworthy vessels, but what gives us worth, listen, this is the gospel. What gives us worth is not the, 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 the value we have in ourselves. What gives us worth is what has been laid within us. The value of Christ's presence has been placed within us, and we have been made pure because of his purity. I think the manger reminds us that God's presence not only came into this world, but he chose to dwell within us. We become, in the same way, we become mangers just like this one. I love, by the way, I love the earthiness. This is one of Jordan Peterson's favorite words when he wrote, always used the word earthy. I love the earthiness of the narrative of Jesus' arrival. The shepherds have dirt under their fingernails. They have ripped clothes. The manger is dirty. They're in a stable. Mary and Joseph are not rich. They're poor. There's, there's this earthy human element to this. This is the environment in which Christ, the presence of God invades, the Son of God invades in the common places. Do you see that? And what we do in church and what we do in religion is we create these sterilized environments. We bleach everything. We go, we got to make this really spiritual place so God's presence can come. I go, forget that. The Spirit of God comes, the Son of God comes in the dirt. I don't mean the dirt of sin. I don't mean the dirt of immorality. I mean the dirt of commonality. You don't think God can work in your messy house? You don't think God can meet you and send his presence and send the glory of his Son in your, your dirty minivan? Or, or, or in your, your common job? I love how common and earthy and dirty and regular the life of these people are. This is where Jesus shows up, right? Now, number three, and we'll end here. Why the presence of and the praise of the angels? Why the presence and the praise of the angels? Let me tell you why I think it's worth considering. First of all, you got one angel that shows up to the shepherds, right, in verse 9. Shows up and, and says, if you want to look at it, it says, uh, you know, uh, angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, this is normal up until this point. We've had one angel appearing to people lots of times. Happened to Zechariah, happened to Mary. The glory of the Lord has appeared around this angel. So that in and of itself would have been plenty for the shepherds to go, okay. But for some reason, I want, I want you to get the intrigue of this, okay? For some reason, in an unprecedented moment, God decides that that's not enough for these shepherds. He decides to crack open the skies and allow the shepherds for an instant to see the reality of the power and praise and glory that exists surrounding the identity of this baby so that the shepherds can see it. Look at it more closely in verse 13. 
Suddenly there was an angel with a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, notice they're not singing, doesn't say they're singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Okay, have you ever considered how strange that for whatever reason God cracked the heavens open and let the shepherds see this reality? A multitude of angels praising God. What is up with that? What are we supposed to think about that? First of all, let me say that this is not something unique. This is only unique in that humans could see it for a minute. Are you with me? Okay. The heavens, the host of heavens, all created beings praise Christ day and night. They don't sleep. If you could see right now out of this fallen, broken dimension, if you could see into the kingdom of God, you would see hosts of hosts of hosts of seraphim and cherubim, like we see in Isaiah chapter 6, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord most high. All God does is he opens the spiritual dimension for just a moment for these common shepherds to peer up and see that this baby is not just an earthly Messiah, not just a humanly prophet, but he is in fact God the Son. And he commands all power in the universe. This is important. We should ask the question, why does this happen and why is it here in Luke's narrative? And here's where I come back to where I started. Lest we make the mistake of sentimentalizing and romanticizing and making the story of Jesus into a sweet, cute, little, cuddly, snuggly story. Luke does not allow that, and neither does God the Father. God the Father cracks open the heavens and lets us see pure nuclear praise happening eternally, centered around the person of Jesus Christ, lest we forget that he's not only the man, he is the God-man. He is worth our worship. He is human enough to come in and save us. He is human enough to relate with us. He's human enough to crawl around in the muck and the mire and live the entirety of the human experience and die for our sins. But he is God enough to take our praise and be worthy of our worship. We do not come here to celebrate a baby. We come here to celebrate the fact that God became man and remained God. It's theologically confusing, but it's incredibly important. We must see that Jesus is both God and man. The written account ensures we will not easily forget that the child, though truly man, is fully God and as such commands all power and authority in the universe. Let me remind you, in fact, why don't you just turn there really quick. This is a foreshadow, this moment of these angels, and we'll close here. This is a foreshadow of Revelation chapter 5 and verse 11. Because see, Jesus didn't stay a baby, did he? What happened? He grew up, he lived 33 years, intentionally died on the cross, rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and here we see him in the future, in glory, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. It says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. Amen. 
We have to read the Advent story and it should send us, a hype, it should hyperlink us directly to the end of the book. Because see, Jesus became a child for the strict purpose that he could die. For the strict purpose that he could grow up and die in the place of you and I in our sin. So that he could become the lamb. But see, he's not just the lamb, is he? He's the lion and he's the lamb. He commands all power in heaven. So may we never forget that the baby Jesus was only a baby for an instant, for a time. Eternally, he is God the Son. He never stopped being God the Son. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our, ad our adoration. The co-eternal, co-creative, all-supreme Son of God is not to be seen only as a weak baby. Do not trivialize the incarnation. I truly think that one of the most astounding features of the gospel is not that God resurrected. It's that God could become a man and that he could die. That's incredible. And it's good news because he died in our place. He became the new Adam. So let me just end with, with a few just, let me, let me, if you're going to walk away with anything, just take these home with you. Number one, God does the most powerful work through the most earthy and common agencies. I want you to think about that this week. When you think about the, 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 the narrative of Christ's arrival, think about the commonness of it. Now think about your life. Think about what God wants to do in that. Secondly, God has sent a witness to us to reveal the good news of his salvation. Just like the shepherds, you've been given the witness. You've been given the revelation. You've been told. Now, will you go? That's the question. Will you go? Have you gone? Are you going? Are you responding in faith like the shepherds? And thirdly, consider both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. That alone should make our heads explode. <laughs> the fact that God, could become man, why he would do that, and how that redeems and saves us. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? We're going to sing some more as we pray. Father, Father, we thank you for sending your son into this world. We thank you for the salvation that you accomplished, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you did not come to create a, a sweet little holiday for us. You came into this world to put sin and death to death. You came into this world to rescue us through the back door of this world. You came to destroy evil once and for all. Thank you for Luke's narrative. Thank you for this incredible passage that reminds us and will never let us forget that, that Jesus, you never stopped being God. The heavens were just there, ready at any moment to show up with power. Thank you, Jesus, for coming into this world, for stepping into the brokenness of, of the stuff of life and redeeming us, Lord Jesus, out of it. God, we love you. We pray that you would be honored in these next couple of songs, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.